0: On this episode of the Wavemaker podcast,
1: create with crap. Create with crap because you can improvise with crap,
0: improvising your way to success. My guest Kathy Salad has an unfair advantage in the art of improv, and so would you. If as a 12-year-old kid, miserable in school, you came home one day and your mother gave you this advice. She said to me,
1: "Okay, I think you've had enough. I think you should quit school. I think you should quit school." And I think you should start your own school, Uh, start a school that you want to go to.
0: And so she did. Kathy Saylet has been improvising ever since and teaching others how to improvise, not for careers in theater, but for virtually every other profession. We're
1: using theater and performance combined with breakthroughs in the human development sciences. So we're looking at what's the play that's currently running, who are the actors, who are the characters, and how can we help them get from the play that they're currently in to the play that they want to
0: be in. I'm Michael Shoulder, and this is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.
1: I love the name of your podcast. Say it out loud. (laughs) Podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you.
0: I first became curious about Kathy Salad when I read about her in Daniel Pink's book, To Sell Is Human. Salad has just written her own book, Performance Breakthrough: A Radical Approach to Success at Work, and improv is at the heart of it. So, uh, Kathy Salad, do you see my page here? Do you see my page of questions right in front of you? Yes, I do. Describe it for me. It's a blank slate. It's a blank <laughs> slate which I thought would be perfect for a master of improvisation because you can guide me to fill up this page. I
1: will do my very best.
0: I've come here to, to find out not only about your new book Performance Breakthrough, but your whole program Performance of a Lifetime and about your life because I'm fascinated with how you got from wherever you grew up and something strange that you did in eighth grade that I saw to here today. So where would you start your story?
1: Where would I start my story? Uh, I guess I could start it back in the eighth grade, since you brought it up. Uh, one of the things as an improviser is you're always hearing and picking up on offers that people gave you. So you did give me a number, and a number of offers, and that was a nice one, so I'll start there. You described it as strange. Uh, perhaps it was. I, I'm a junior high school dropout. I dropped out of school, finished the seventh grade. I did not like school. This is the Late 60s, early 70s, when I was in school, and um, I had was not happy. I was a good student and everything, but um, it was a time in America of enormous change, and everything in the world was changing, but not my school. And the teachers were very strict and authoritarian, and the curriculum I felt was um, outdated and irrelevant. You know, there were the usual things of having the cliques that you know you either were a part of or not a part of. But I was very unhappy in school, and I came home pretty much every day and complained to my mom, who was a wonderful mom, as so many are, and was supportive and helped me navigate a lot of what was going on. Uh, one day, my teacher um, wouldn't let Peter Winston, who had raised his hand, go to the bathroom again, <laughs> and um, I got into a fight with the teacher, and I was sent to the principal's office and sent home. and. I came home to my mom crying, as I often did. And on this day, she said to me, OK, I think, uh, I think you've had enough. I think you should quit school. And I think you should start your own school, uh, start a school that you want to go to. And I responded by saying, you know, I'm 12, Mommy. <laughs> and, and she said, I know. <laughs> she said, I know. Uh, she said, we'll do this together. And are there other kids who feel the way that you do? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact. She said, well, get them to drop out also <laughs> and start start a school, and um, so we did. This is in New York City, and we gathered the, what ultimately became about 25 of us, uh, along with supportive parents and people in the community and innovative educators to create a new school. We took over an abandoned storefront on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It had been a dry cleaning store. And we set about to design the curriculum, to hire teachers, to both establish school policy and to figure out what school policy even meant. What does it even mean to establish that? And we did everything from both being students to um, figuring out the toilet cleaning schedule and we studied, you know, the 60s essentials, uh, you know, (laughs) tie-dyeing, and the history of the labor movement. It was a full range. Uh, By the way, we had a, you know, very intense debate about the name of the school. You know, it was like the People's Liberation, Change the World, Revolution, you know, different, different sort of very grand, big idea names. And ultimately, you know, we had been raising money through bake sales, and we were trying to, you know, come up with whatever funds we could. And so we saved... Basically ninety-five dollars by on a sign by calling the school the Elizabeth Cleaners Street School because we had taken over that storefront which was a dry
0: cleaners.
1: (laughs) So that was the name of the school. Give me the full name again. The Elizabeth Cleaners. Cleaners Street School. Does the school still exist? No, no. I stayed in the school for about a year and a half, and then I dropped out of that school. (laughs) And I never went back to any traditional school. So I I sit before you still, a bona fide junior high school dropout. I don't have a GED or any diploma or anything like that. Uh, But the school lasted probably till maybe 1974 or something like that, or 75. So are you
0: self Do you read a lot?
1: I do read a lot. I do read a lot. uh, And I perform a lot. I mean, one of the things that, that the the school gave me, it set me on a non-traditional path, okay? I had had this experience of breaking rules and making up new ones, and I think that combination is important. I mean, after all, we were performing as people who knew how to, as people who could, you know, create a school, but we had never done that before. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we performed as if we did, or we performed as if this is a normal thing to do, And in the process of doing that, you become the thing that you are performing.
0: You become the thing that you are performing. Somehow, Kathy Saylor's mother was wise enough to recognize that principle.
1: My mom actually was a community activist. Uh, she was um, sort of one of the early uh, women's activists in the, in the 70s. And uh, I mean, her professional career, she was a stylist, a fashion stylist. So she had great style. <laughs> and, uh, but she was a radical. And she was, uh, was and remains. I mean, she's passed away. But she remains one of my biggest role models. And I can say that the combination of her... And uh, what she gave to me with her willingness to uh, be creative in this way and to take risks and to support me in doing that.
0: I mean, she clearly had such an improvisational spirit, right? which takes a certain lack of fear.
1: I don't know whether it's a lack of fear. I think it's playing with the fear. I mean, sometimes there are some situations where I no longer feel afraid and I am improvising, but for the situations that are genuinely scary. And there are many of them. And in our work that we do, in, and I talk about this in the book and, and the work that we do at Performance of a Lifetime, I don't think that you can get people to not be afraid. It's, let's play with the fear. Let's improvise even though your knees are knocking.
0: Let's improvise even though your knees are knocking. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, Kathy Saylet, is author of the new book, Performance Breakthrough, a Radical Approach to Success at Work. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. So clearly, you have to, I would imagine you define yourself as insanely curious. Yes, and And insane. And insane, good. (laughs) And so you took that curiosity, dropped out of school, you were still just a teenager, what was your next step? I'm going to come to your to what you're doing professionally now, yes, but so I just I want to know was, how you got here. Right,
1: okay. I actually registered for an alternative teacher training program where the practicum was at a school called the Working Classroom. We were working with inner-city kids, and I was 15, and the, the oldest student was 13. <laughs> so my interest in non-traditional education and the relationship between learning and education and personal growth was something that was still very much there for me. I also, I, I had been a performer, I had been a, a singer as a young person, and I went down that path. I became a professional singer, a vocalist, jazz, and R&B, ultimately got into theater and improvisation. I'm one of the founders of a sort of avant-garde experimental theater in New York City called the Castillo Theater. And it was through that work, it was through meeting a grouping of people who were very interested in looking at new ways, new approaches for learning and development and change. And so this grouping consisted of educators, psychologists, artists, community activists, regular old people. Our work grows out of a field in psychology, a burgeoning field in psychology called performative psychology. And um, it's a number of different psychologists and philosophers, including the developmental psychologist Lois Holzman, the late philosopher and psychotherapist Fred Newman, Ken and Mary Gergen, who were social psychologists. And their work, and our work, is very inspired by their discoveries and their work and the work of a Russian psychologist by the name of Lev Vygotsky, who understood that in, that in children's learning and development, play and performance plays an actually a very important role in helping the child to perform, as he puts it, a head taller than him or herself. That through play, through pretending, you can become who you are not yet. They did some of the breakthrough work of discovering, taking Bogotsky's work on play with children and saying, well, what does that look like for adults? How do we reinitiate that kind of growth and development? I mean, when you take a child and help them go from being a non-speaker to a speaker, that's a huge transformation. Can we keep growing and developing and keep having those kinds of transformations as adults? I mean, as kids, we're supported to play and to pretend and to do all that, and then at a certain point, and I talk about this in the book, at a certain point, we're told stop playing, stop messing around. It's time to learn the rules, get it right, You know, behave yourself, <laughs> like no more pretending. And obviously, that's an important part of life, and you do want to learn rules and things like, what do you do? You, know, you don't cross the street when the, the light is red, and so on and so forth. But we often do that at the expense of playing and continuing to experiment, and so the performative psychology folks talked about, wrote about, wrote about research and also created activities which I was fortunate to participate in, which showed that if you can if you can help people to start playing again, then you can reinitiate a kind of learning and growth and development that they haven't seen since childhood what's the play that works for ki- for adults it's theater it's theater it's performance it's improvisation because the stage gives you the license and in some sense what you're supposed to do on stage is pretend you know you're still you but you're playing other characters
0: so as you got these insights then i so said what point did you see, there's a business in this. Mm -hmm. There's actually, I can make a life out of this.
1: Yeah, that's a very, well, it's not a very long story, but um, we started um, along with the philosopher and therapist Fred Newman, my colleague David Knackman, who is still to this day our creative director at Performance of a Lifetime. We started a school called Performance of a Lifetime, and we dubbed it a school for the rest of us
0: you just can't stop starting schools. I know,
1: I know, I just <laughs> love starting schools, I really do. Schools that are really different than traditional schools. We basically were imparting and, and the, the, the joy of performing, taking all the wonderful uh, experimentation and playfulness that actors get to do in a not-so-playful environment, by the way. I mean, auditioning is one of the worst you know, human experiences that anybody can have but giving it over to people who have no intention of trying to become a performer, but to, as a way to help them to grow and develop. And then out of that, one of my students who had taken one of our courses there said to me, could you come and do a program like what you're doing, what I went through, could you do it at my company? She was a senior vice president and a financial services firm, and I said,
0: no, no no way. I cannot bring this into a company. So you broke the cardinal rule of improvisation, and you said no.
1: I said no, no. I said, I can't do that. I am not a corporate person. It was a real no. It was a no, no. okay. I mean, I just, it freaked me out. But she persisted. She was like, I really think that you could help my people. And then, uh, as I talk about in the book, she gave me the winning argument. She said, I'll pay you $1,500. And, you know, we were struggling to keep our lights on. We were charging $15 for tap dance classes, you know what I'm saying? So it was like, so it was like whoa, you know, maybe we could pay this month's rent. So I, just, so I was like, okay, it won't be a total sellout if I go in and I just do this one gig. And so we did. I was like, all right, I don't know how to do this but I'm going to relate to this as an offer and I'm going to try to create with it. She seems to think that there's something here. I'm going to say yes to that and trust that and build with it. And lo and behold, it ended up being a fabulous workshop and very helpful to them. So we we were like, oh, this is really surprising. Let, let's let see if we can take this on the road. And, and we did and ultimately changed the whole business model of the of the company. It's a traveling school. A traveling school with a with a merry band of very, very talented people who, I think we have a pretty unique uh, blend of talent in, in our folks, because you have to be an actor, you have to be an improviser, but as I was sharing before, we're using theater and performance combined with breakthroughs in the human development sciences. And so, and you've got to know business and be comfortable in business and uh, so our merry band of people um, are super talented, have a very unique combination of skills and we work with people all over the globe. We work with all industries. One of the places that we do a lot of work is in healthcare, and that's ranged from working with 250 oncology nurses at a major teaching hospital on creating a culture of resiliency to
0: dealing with huge fights between units (laughs) what i need from you is i need a way to take this improvisational mindset home to my family and not have them realize that i've been coached
1: well let me ask you this michael why don't you tell them that you've been coached tell them the real deal (laughs) and then say play a new play an improv game with me then say that
0: (laughs) oh you know what well okay well give me the game and, and i'll and i'll consider that
1: well, I mean, you might want to actually play a yes-and game with them. Have you ever done that? No. Oh, all right. Well, here's the thing you can do.
0: Play the game with me.
1: Okay. That's... So there's a number of ways to play it, but this might be a fun way. Um, just did this with a grouping of uh, marketing professionals and a financial services firm. So say you want to plan your next
0: vacation, your family vacation. We're planning a vacation. Yes. Uh, and, and maybe in this case, the parents and the kids have very different ideas of what we what we should do but go ahead let's let's okay
1: so you were all sitting around and one of you makes a suggestion for an idea Uh, oh by the way but before you before you start the the exercise you establish that number one you have an unlimited budget number two there needs to be collective agreement on whatever it is that you decide and all kinds of things that might heretofore have been uh, thought impossible Either because of budget or resources or access to technology, it's all—it's all there. You have every—you have anything and everything you
0: need. Why those parameters?
1: Well, you'll—I think you'll see from the playing of the game. Basically, because I don't—I want the—I want you to. Um, no, it's a good question, because basically, it's almost like there are no parameters in this construct, right? And so, I want to help people see the extent to which we put. The constraints on and and the impact that that can have. Good, good, okay. okay. So let's say you start the conversation and you say, "Okay, kids, you know, um, I think um, what I, I think what we should do is we should we should fly to Paris, and uh, actually, what we should do is we should get the old Concorde uh, working again, and we should fly to Paris together as a family." Okay, so you have some idea like that, right? And then. All, for all of you, I don't know how big your family is, but for each of you, gets a chance to go around many, many times, as, as long as you want to run the, the game. And each sentence needs to begin with the words, yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, but. Okay. But what you'll find is that not surprisingly, you're not going to get very far, even though you have an unlimited budget, even though everything that is you know is at your disposal and you could do anything you want, but we just, you know, yes, but, well, you can't go to the Concord is broken. it's been broken for God knows how long. We're not going to get. Yeah, yes, but and, and so and so on and so forth, right? So you keep on trying to make this thing happen, doesn't go so well. Then, do that for like a minute. It's torture or frustrating. Then do it again, and this time somebody puts out an idea. Uh, Let's go to Jurassic Park. Um, I hear that they've got docile dinosaurs now. They've actually brought back uh, the titanosaurus that's showing at the uh, Museum of Natural History. Has been moved, he's there, he's fine, he's good. Let's do some dinosaur riding. And then every sentence begins with the words yes and. And you'll see the difference in terms of what's possible and where people go. Now, a challenge that you have is that you want to, as an improviser, you're not just like one crazy idea after another, you're saying yes to the specific thing or specific offers that somebody makes, and so then you're building on what they say, meaning whatever you say, it couldn't have been said unless the person who spoke before said what they said. And so in improv, we have a a term that we use, which is to make the other person look good. And the way you do that is that you relate to everything and anything that anybody has said or done as brilliant as exactly the right thing even if you know you don't like the idea even if it wasn't something that you were thinking of in fact it shouldn't be something that you were thinking of right but you're building with it
0: you're listening to wave maker conversations a podcast for the insanely curious i'm michael shoulder my guest is kathy saylet author of the new book, Performance Breakthrough, a radical approach to success at work. I was working with a strategy
1: firm um, and they had brought me in to work with a team who's doing, you know, pretty incredible work with some pretty significant leaders, business leaders across the globe. And they had asked for our help in how they were basically trying to help them to be more collaborative with each other, like super smart people and, you know, great ideas and big thinkers, and they just bite all the time, <laughs> they just have a lot of trouble, sort of, and, and, and end up being a, I wouldn't say totally dysfunctional, but not as productive as they could be. So they brought me in as a director, because a lot of the work that we do at Performance of a Lifetime, which might typically be called coaching is actually, we, we, we coach with the eye of a theater director, so we're looking at what's the play that's currently running, who are the actors, who are the characters, and how can, and what's the play that they want to produce? What's the play they want to be in, and how can we help them get from the play that they're currently in to the play that they want to be in? And that's, that's as big as, like, what's the company's strategy? Like, where are they now, and where do they want to be in three years, and what do they need to do together from the human side and the, from the human vantage point to help them get there, right? So it's actually in this context that we're working with this particular company. So uh, they had one of the guys was, um, was talking about uh, a project that he had kicked off and uh, had a bunch of things that he wanted to do and bring people in that, from other places of the company. It's sort of the details are not that important. And they got into a big fight. They got into a fight about, like, we don't have the resources to do that, and, you know, and, and, and if you did that, then you're taking over so-and-so's, you know, uh, you know, area, and blah, 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 blah. So then I said, cut. And they were like, what? What do you mean, cut? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm your theater director, right? So let's cut. Let's go back to the point in the scene where you said, where, you know, John said to, to uh, Dora, there's no way I'm giving you my people. And they were like, oh, you know, I said, do you remember that line? And they said, yeah, I guess I do. So let me now just say something about that. The very act of relating to that meeting as if it was a performance that they had been doing and to, to stop it and, and to point out, you know, we could do that differently. We could decide together, and you've asked for my help in this, and so I'm here to help with that. Uh, We could do that conversation in a different way. Just that idea alone is like, whoa, who knew that we could do, like in theater, you know, you get take two, take three, take four, you know, you get to do it again. Well, I think we can do that in life.
0: Oh, I see. So now I want to stop you. I just got this idea of take two Mm -hmm. is so empowering. Right now I can feel it in my bones. Yeah things i could have done just over just over the past 24 hours mm-hmm. it's and totally it, and, fun and also as i think to play and just to acknowledge you've made the mistake by saying yes. take two now again i have to tell the kids that i got this out of my interview right off the bat because <laughs> otherwise they'll know i i didn't right. come up with this myself right. but but um take two okay so that's so this is it i you know what i could pack up the interview's over. Thank you very much. Happy <laughs> Got the
1: therapy you wanted. Yes.
0: Well, you know what? Come to think of it, you you are. So I have to say, you you are, you are a therapist in a sense, right? In a sense. In a sense. And um, yeah.
1: one of my favorite stories in the book, we had done, and I and I know I'm now changing the story, but uh, we had done work with a, um, I think it was a software development firm, and there had we had been dealing with some serious conflict between. Uh, This guy who was like a big producer and like a rainmaker and who just drove everybody crazy. It was just like, and so we did, it's it's the chapter called Create with Crap. Create with Crap. Because you can improvise with crap. In fact, I think so much of what we produce, that we create and produce in our world is crap. So we better, we can't stop producing it. We might as well start creating with it. And in some ways, this thing we were just talking about, Michael, about like, oh my God, this didn't go very well. This this scene and this meeting. It's like this is crap. Okay, cool. Let's figure out what to do with it. Let's do. Let's be creative with it. Which, but part of what you need to do in order to do that is is to is to exercise this human ability to say hmm, that didn't go very well. Like, we don't just do the things we do, we can also see the things that we do. And so if we can access that as part of the creative process and say, hmm, let's do that again. But this story that's in the book, or for that that work that we did, this woman afterwards, this sort of shy woman, her name is Alicia, came over to me afterwards. She said, can I try some of these things at home? (laughs) And I said, yes, please do. And so then she wrote, she apparently did, and she sent me this email, which is in the book, verbatim, and she tells this story about how her husband is always late, and it drives her crazy. He's late, not for work or anything, but like anything that has to do with the family. Late to pick up the kids, late to go to the grocery store, late to come home when he says he's going to be home for dinner, and so on, and they fought about it constantly. She was, and she said she was getting really bored of this experience, in addition to just being frustrated. So, this she came up with this herself. So, she s- went to her husband and she said, Okay, we're gonna do a new performance around you being late. And um, now, every time you're late, you owe me five minutes of dancing. And he was like, What? And so, and he, she was like, Yeah, you're gonna dance with me, we're not gonna fight anymore. We're just going to dance for five minutes every time you're late. So that Saturday, he was late three times (laughs) with the various picking the kids up from soccer, you know, whatever it was. And so then after dinner, they danced for 15 minutes. And she said, you know, it was like the weirdest thing. And it was so wonderful. It was so fabulous. She was like, oh, my God. So I've taken this thing, which is so frustrating to me. And now we dance. (laughs) But I think, so in in the therapeutic context, um, the people that I have worked with, I think they have taught me about this idea that, like, we have so much pain. We have so much sorrow. We have so many things that have happened to us that are not. They're not great. And so not to in any way deny that or ignore it, but maybe we can create with that crap. Maybe we can, we can take what, something that has been hurtful, something that has been painful, and create something anew with it and not just either analyze it, sit with it, deny it, but do something with that.
0: I almost want to marry that with a concept that I got. Uh, do you know Dr. Irvin Yalom, the psychotherapist? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's 84 years old. He is currently writing his memoir. He just came out with a new book recently. And we talked about the idea of regret, because I said, you know, I don't understand people who say, I have no regrets. You know, come on, you've got to have some regrets. And he says, you know, look, his patient body, and by the way, we calculated, and maybe you can do this calculation for yourself, I say, how many hours have you spent, because he, he teaches as well, And you're 84 years old, how many hours have you spent giving people therapy? And he started calculating. Oh my God. And he came up with a number, roughly, we calculated 50,000 hours. So our episode is called 50,000 hours of therapy. And this is what he told me about regrets. I work with regrets quite a bit. And they, they look at what they've regretted in their life and what they haven't done in their life. And that's one thing to look at regrets from the past. But then you you have a moment where you can begin to to say to them, how could you, if we were to meet a year from now, and you were to see me one year from now, how could you possibly have lived a regret-free life during that time? And that's where the therapeutic crunch comes in. What could you do differently so that you wouldn't constantly be building up regrets which you use to judge yourself adversely? So I I like to work with that concept. It's awfully important for an awful lot of people. And it almost sounds like this create with crap could be part of the toolbox mm-hmm. there. Yes. In terms of I would
1: agree. I would agree. Yeah. So Yeah. I mean in a way he's looking forward and saying, What what could I do differently? And I'd say that
0: you've got the process yes, to lead to that. Yes.
1: And I think that I believe that we are all creative people and I don't mean that as in that we're necessarily painters or dancers although i think we are i think that to live life creatively is what it means to live and, and 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 what do we work with as improvisational beings we work with the good stuff the bad stuff the crappy stuff the beautiful stuff
0: this idea of crap in some ways your eyes must light up when you see this crap because, like, you can do something about it. Yeah. You, Kathy, sail it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so that meeting where we said I said cut and there was all this, quote, crap going on, part of what I think not only do my eyes light up, but everybody in the room is like, oh, you mean we could do this differently? And or we could relate to this as something that we could learn from? One of the games I love to play with people is this exercise where you play a game. I won't go into the rules of it, but suffice it to say, sooner or later, you make a mistake in the middle of playing the game. And I do this with very large groups of people. But the instructions that I give people is that when you make a mistake, the thing you need to do is throw your hands up in the air and proudly exclaim at the top of your lungs, I made a mistake! And then everybody around you has to give you a big round of applause. And it's like, and people are like, what? I don't usually do that with mistakes <laughs> and you know you're like yeah no shit Sherlock you know it's this is not the way we relate to mistakes everybody says you know we're supposed to learn from our mistakes and we're a learning organization and everybody says the right thing but in terms of actually living it that's harder and so just that the, the per- changing the performance so you're like Woo-hoo, I made a mistake then it's like oh can we do something different with the crap? Can we do something different with this mistake? And maybe, maybe, what would it mean to celebrate it? Like literally, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe let's, you know, let's dissect it. Let's try to understand, you know, what produced it, because we human beings are who participated in the creation of that mistake.
0: Well, Kathy Salett, uh, author of Performance Breakthrough, which you can buy right now, and I can tell you that coming here to interview you was not a mistake. It was was a big, big, good decision, so.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with
0: you. Same here.
1: (laughs) You're such a wonderful interviewer. You're such a pro.
0: Hey, I didn't say it. Kathy Saylet, author of performance Breakthroughs said it. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you like what you hear, I hope you will share it with your friends and subscribe to Wavemaker for free on iTunes. You can leave a good review. That will help spread the word. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.